And finally, turning together in our Bibles to the sermon passage, Acts 21, let's hear the Lord's word, give himself uh, the offering of our own bodies, our living sacrifice, as Ezekiel calls us to, and let us worship this wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, who's given himself for us and has poured out his Holy Spirit. The story continues in Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul leaving uh, Ephesus, his final, his third and final missionary journey, uh, so-called third final missionary journey. I mentioned last Sunday that there's a fourth missionary journey that's on the way to Rome. So Jerusalem, eventually to Rome. So 21, verse 1, down through verse 26. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad, uh, we went aboard, excuse me, and set sail. When we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So it takes our minds back to chapter 6 and chapter 8. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard... This, we and the people there, urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the custom, to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in uh, in observance to the law. 
But as the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgments, this goes back to chapter 15, that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And to these words, all of God's people say, You know that phrase, led by the Spirit, don't you? Led by the Spirit. It's one of those phrases that not only does the Bible use, but it's one of those phrases that we Christians like to use, led by the Spirit. Now, for, for some of us, for, for a few of us here, uh, that phrase, led by the Spirit, has, uh, you know, great, it has great feeling. It uh, might even have a, some bad feelings associated with it, some bad experiences. Uh, but led by the Spirit is a biblical phrase, but it's one of those phrases that uh, sometimes gets thrown around, uh, sort of like a ball in a tennis court, back and forth, uh, but it doesn't really have much meaning, or it has uh, some kind of a of, a, of an expectation that's been added to the meaning of Scripture. And what I mean by that is sometimes we, we say led by the Spirit, or I was led, or he was led, or she was led, and uh, this and that. But what we really mean is that we had a good feeling about something that we had already decided that we wanted to do. But we sort of baptize it in Christianese, and we say that we were led by the Spirit. We were led by the Spirit. Now, on the one hand, God uses our fallible interpretations and our, our frail understandings, and yes, he does lead us, but uh, to be led by the Spirit is its not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's something that he does. It's to be led. It's certainly for us subjectively to be led, but it's something that the Holy Spirit does. And what I mean by that, again, is this. When was the last time you felt led. The Bible doesn't say felt led by the Spirit, but it, somebody says led by the Spirit. But when was the last time you felt led by the Holy Spirit to go get persecuted? When was the last time you felt led by the Holy Spirit to go be arrested for Jesus? When was the last time you felt that you were being led by the Holy Spirit to go be imprisoned because you believed in Jesus? When's the last time you or maybe a Christian said, I felt love of the Holy Spirit to be martyred, to die for my faith? Now, we in our nice and tidy Christian world, our little subculture with our Christianese, no, we, we, we think of leading by the Spirit as all, all that good stuff, that positive stuff. And I was led to, uh, to marry, you know, this, this great woman. Or I was led to this great job and it just happened to be like 50% more money than the, the one I had before, right? It's only the good stuff that we think about being led by the Holy Spirit. But Paul here is led by the Spirit to be persecuted, to be arrested, to be imprisoned, and to be hauled off across the Mediterranean to Rome to be martyred. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we've seen something of this before, that the Spirit of God is leading the apostles and leading the church. And, and here's another example of that, to be led by 
the Spirit. And so you see there, Paul led, led in travel. He, he's led throughout uh, the Mediterranean world. He, he goes from Ephesus, where he was there for three years, we saw, and now he's making his way to Jerusalem. Uh, and so you can see there, he's on various ships. I've sort of outlined that for you there on the on the sermon notes page. He's on, on a ship from Ephesus, and he goes to this little island of coast, to the island of Rhodes, to the coast of Asia Minor Epitara. That's in verse 1. Then he hops on another ship, and they go to the region of Phoenicia. They go past the island of Cyprus, that beautiful island, uh, and to the uh, the port, should say the port there, of Tyre in Syria. And then he has to get onto a third ship. After seven days, they make their way to Ptolemais, and after another day to Caesarea down there, uh, that, that great city of Caesar, that fortress city of Caesar uh, in the, the region of Judea. And then he makes his way overland to the, the great capital city of Jerusalem. And that's going to be now the focus of the last part of Acts. We're now in chapter 21. It has 28 chapters. So the last eight chapters are Paul going to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to Rome. That's the great focus here. But he's being led by the Holy Spirit to do this. Remember chapter 16. I, I know I've pointed back to that chapter uh, probably one too many times, but in chapter 16, where Paul and, and Timothy were, or Paul and Silas, excuse me, were wanting to travel throughout various regions of Asia Minor, modern day Western Turkey, but the Spirit of God forbade them and refused to allow them to go to certain parts, but to have to go to other parts. And we said that the Holy Spirit was guiding, directing Paul, and leading him not just where to go, but where not to go. And we saw that the power of the Holy Spirit, that the missionary work of Paul was led to the power of the Holy Spirit in his sovereign will, in, in his divine power, leading and guiding. And what's interesting is, uh, later on in chapter 27, and if you turn over there quickly, just, just to give us a little preview of what we're going to see eventually, but in chapter 27 at verse 15, uh, this idea of being led by the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul describes it in very, or Luke describes it in very human terms. 27 at verse 15, where, uh, where Luke's writing about their, uh, their experience on a sailboat from Jerusalem to Rome in a great storm at sea. There was a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter. It struck down from the land, verse 15. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Notice that what's called a passive verb there. We were being driven along by the wind. He describes the leading of the Holy Spirit as the wind blowing this nor'easter, blowing into the ship's sail. The ship could no longer turn where it wanted to go, and so it had to be led, passively being directed and guided to where God using this wind, using this meteorological thing called wind, to lead them into a shipwreck. To a shipwreck. Now later on, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter uh, 1 at verse 21, I mentioned that verse there in the outline as well, Peter uses that exact same verb as Luke does in the book of Acts. I'm going to read that verse. First, or Second Timothy, uh, Second Peter, sorry, Second Peter, chapter number one, and here he's describing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit guiding the authors of 
sacred scripture. He tells us that we know, first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along. That's the same exact verb, the same exact tense, the same exact everything as that verb in Acts 27.15. Just as the writers of the Holy Scripture, the ancient prophets, were carried along, they were guided along by the Holy Spirit in the same way that ship that Paul eventually is going to get onto that is blown and directed and carried and moved by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who led the writers of Holy Scripture is the same Spirit who led the Apostle Paul into a shipwreck. To be led of the Holy Spirit is not just a good feeling. Not just a good feeling. It's to be objectively led and directed and guided by His will. The Scriptures don't come from our own will, Peter says, but by the will of the Holy Spirit in the same way the leading of the Holy Spirit is not what you already wanted to do and you found some little, little outside confirmation of that to make you feel like you were being led. No, it's the leading of the Holy Spirit, guiding and directing you. And so I've said many times before that we have to learn as we read the story of the book of Acts and we, we see how the apostles in the ancient church, they were guided and led to the Holy Spirit. We have to learn how to respond and to react to that in a way that glorifies God. And so we need to learn that the leading of the Holy Spirit is active in our day-to-day affairs, just like the Apostle. Was the Holy Spirit directly involved in that shipwreck in Acts 27? Yes. No, no, that, that was the devil's work. The devil does the bad stuff, God does the good stuff. There's no way God can be involved in tragedy in my life. There's no way. God is too good for that. Or we say, you know, well, not my God. My God would never fill in the blank. Are you sure that you really have the right God or you have an idol? We need to learn, just as the apostles did, that the Spirit of God leads us and that, yes, He works all things out for good for those who love Him and who are the called according to His purpose. And sometimes that leading means that we're going to be led into tragedy. Learning how to do this. Learning how to trust in the leading of the Holy Spirit in my day-to-day affairs helps me be more heavenly-minded as a Christian. To be more heavenly-minded. Many of we all we all came in this morning. We had to we had to find a parking spot. You know, Lord, why? Why me, Lord? You know, why can't I just find a nice little nice uh, 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 a parking spot with my name on it, right in front, and I don't you don't have to walk very far. You know, why, Lord, did you make it so hard today with all that's going on around us? Why? Just trust the Lord. The Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us. Why? So we'd be more heavenly minded. Don't worry about it. The Lord is in control. To learn that the Holy Spirit leads us in our day-to-day affairs helps us to be more mission-minded. To think that everything that we do and that uh, we are being led to do and being guided to do and how the Holy Spirit is with us helps us to see our our day-to-day lives as a part of the great mission to bring the gospel to the world. It may not make a whole lot of sense at the moment, but we need to trust the Holy Spirit's leading to be more heavenly-minded, more mission-minded, and to help us be more prayerful and purposeful in our lives.
It doesn't feel like, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't read like the apostle was a woe is me kind of a guy when he got into that shipwreck. We'll see that eventually. No, it was part of the mission, part of his purpose. And they end up washed up on a shore. And trust me, we're going to see that the apostle even uses that to spread the gospel. The worst things that can happen in our lives, we have to believe that the Holy Spirit can use them for ultimate good. Amen? We have to believe that. So Paul here and those with him are led in travel. And secondly, they're led by prophecy. You see that. Uh, as well, verse 4 and uh, verse 10 through 14 especially. Now go back to chapter number 19. Uh, we're going to see something here. There's a, there, there's a problem here, and I, and I hope to give you something of a resolution. I mentioned this last Sunday. But notice here, uh, number, uh, chapter 19, at verse 21, Paul has already been saying multiple times that he resolved in the Spirit, so you see that in verse 21 of chapter number 19, that Paul resolved in the Spirit that he was relying on the Holy Spirit. He was trusting in the Holy Spirit. He was drawing on the Holy Spirit's power and guidance. And he's already learned in chapter 16. Go there, don't go there. And so he's resolving as he's trusting and relying, not in himself, but in the Holy Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. And then he says there, notice there again, that after many days, after being there, I must go to see Rome. Down in chapter 20, just the next chapter over, he told the Ephesian elders, we saw this last Sunday, verse 22 uh, and following, as he was expressing the whole ministry that he had amongst him for three years, he said, behold, verse 22, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by the Spirit. I've got to get there. The Holy Spirit is leading me and I'm trusting in that. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, we can say, and this possibly could be the case, that everywhere Paul went, the Holy Spirit was directly speaking to him that he was going to be imprisoned and afflicted. But I take this in a, we might say, a little more of a natural way. But Paul learned through the natural occurrences of his life to, to know what the Holy Spirit was saying. How did he know in every single city that what awaited him in Jerusalem was imprisonment and afflictions? How did he know that? Go back and read the book of Acts. How did he know that? Either the Holy Spirit directly told him, or I, I believe it's this. When you read the book of Acts, what happens in, every, almost, in almost every single city Paul's in that we've read so far. And we don't have the entire history of the Apostle Paul, but we have a lot of stories. What happens in almost every single city that we've looked at? He gets persecuted. He gets beaten. He gets run out of town. He has to run for his life. He has to get led down in a, in a basket through a city wall. He gets stoned. They thought he was dead, and then he was raised back up. And then he goes back into the very same city and preaches the gospel. A mob uh, 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 gathers to rip him to shreds and the churches don't go into that Ephesian amphitheater. Don't go! He learned through his daily life that if every time I go to a city and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am getting beaten, afflicted, persecuted, imprisoned, 
and put to death. Surely the Holy Spirit is saying to me that when I go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be a triumphal entry. No one's going to put down palm branches for me, Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, this Christian apostle. No, he learned from his daily life the Spirit of God was speaking to him through those daily things. We all want that voice from heaven. We all want that still, small voice. We all want the riding in the sky like the airplane just drives, uh, flies by on the beach with big, uh, with, with a big banner behind it. We all want that. But Paul learned the voice of the Spirit through the daily life that he lived. And he knew that just as Jesus suffered and was glorified, that's the pattern of the Christian life as well. We suffer first, we are afflicted first, and then we're glorified. So he's constrained, he's compelled, he knows through every interaction he's ever had in every single city that there is opposition awaiting him, there's imprisonment, there's affliction, but I don't count my life as, a, as of any value nor precious to, my, uh, to myself, verse 24. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He didn't care what awaited him because it was all a means and a vehicle to allow him to bring the gospel to testify of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he's resolved, he's constrained. And so he gets to, back to our text, he he gets on his trip there, uh, on that second ship, he finally gets to the port of Tyre. And they seek out disciples, so they go to find the, the, the believers in the city. We stayed there for seven days. But here's the big problem, or seeming big problem, of our text. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Do you see the problem there? Paul is compelled. Paul resolves on the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God has been saying to him through ordinary daily interaction, that's how God spoke to him, that what awaits him is imprisonment, trial, and probably going to be death. The Spirit of God has been saying that to him, and he's been trusting in that, leading the Holy Spirit, and so he's compelled and he resolves to go. But the disciples entire, notice that phrase, through the Spirit are telling him not to go to Jerusalem. So is there a contradiction? Many people say there's a contradiction here. Many people say that this is the, this is the case for New Testament prophecy being fallible. And that there are fallible prophecies and fallible prophets. My wife once had a prophet tell her that she was going to marry a certain guy. Well, she's not married to that certain guy. Did the Holy Spirit really say that or not? I believe the Holy Spirit led her to marry me. Right? What gives? We've all probably experienced something like this. Those of us, at least, who, who, uh, who, who come out of charismatic and Pentecostal churches, right? So is there a contradiction here? Some people say, yeah, there's a big contradiction here. The only way to resolve that is to say, well, the the prophets of the New Testament aren't Old Testament-type prophets. Sometimes they get it right, other times they get it wrong. And, uh, you know, I once heard it from a preacher 
a Pentecostal preacher who said, you know, what you got to do when you hear a prophet prophesy is you got to eat the meat, spit out the bones. You heard that phrase before? Or that, that little idea? Eat the meat, spit out the bones. You know, a prophet comes to church and he has a revival and he has a meeting and he gives prophecies and he says what he says. Some of it's true, some of it's not. That's, that's the case of New Testament prophecy, we're told. Others say, well, the, these disciples, there's no contradiction because the, uh, these disciples of Tyre, they were just claiming to have a prophetic inspiration. They were just claiming to have prophetic inspiration. He leaves, notice, he leaves. Verse 7, they, they, they voyage on and they eventually make their way to Caesarea and they come to the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the first deacons we saw in chapter 6 and chapter 8. He's also an evangelist. Uh, the miraculous is happening with him and his evangelistic ministry. He had four unmarried daughters. Four unmarried daughters who prophesied. What were they prophesying? No doubt they were prophesying, just as we're going to we'll see here with Agabus and what Paul was uh, deducing the Holy Spirit was saying, they were prophesying what was awaiting him, imprisonment, arrest, persecution, possibly even death. And so this Agabus comes down from Judea to Caesarea, and he took Paul's belt, and just like an Old Testament prophet, think about Ezekiel, for example, he takes off his belt, and he, and he, and he uses that, that rope, not a belt like we have, but a, but a, but a rope, and he, he ties his feet, and he ties his hands, and he, he gives a, a, a visual prophecy like an Old Testament prophet, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul has resolved. Paul has been constrained. Paul has, uh, he has, uh, uh, he's heard the voice of the Holy Spirit through his sufferings that that's what's awaiting him. The church in Tyre says, don't go. We saw the church in Ephesus, don't go. If that's what awaits you, don't go. And so Agabus resolves, Agabus resolves and cuts right through all this, that this is what the Holy Spirit actually is saying. But notice, this is Luke writing, verse 12, when we, Luke and all those who came with the apostle from Ephesus and Miletus and, and elsewhere, and, and the church there in Caesarea, including Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, we, notice, when we heard this prophecy of Agabus, and no doubt the prophecies of those four memory daughters of Philip, we urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. You, you can see, this is where the, res, the resolution is. The problem is not that there's a contradiction that the Holy Spirit said one thing to Paul and another thing to these other people. No, that's not the case at all. The resolution is not, well, some people claim to be prophets and other people really are prophets. That leaves us sort of, sort of, you know, well, how do you know who's real and who's not? Still, that doesn't resolve the problem. 
It was this, on the basis of that prophecy, that true prophecy, the disciples then, they make a, they make a human application. Well, if that's the case, Paul, don't go. We're urging you not to go. Notice the prophecy is just the person who owns it. This is what's going to happen. So they are reasoning as human beings. They are reasoning as those who love Paul. They've heard the gospel. They've heard of him. Uh, they, they, they've heard the stories. And now they receive him. They do not want to see his ministry come to an end. And so in their own humanity, in their own love for him, their own desire to see the gospel spread, uh, they are imp- applying that, that prophecy, but yet in a wrong way. It's a misapplication of the prophecy. Because notice Paul, he even basically says that to them. What are you doing? What are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. Notice that it's, they, they love him. They care for him. They don't want to see him harmed. They want to see the gospel continue to spread. Don't go if that's the case. No. I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, and this is, this is the ultimate Reality, isn't it? Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. The apostles don't want him to, or the disciples don't want him to go. But they realize the Lord's will must be done. Who are we to stand in God's way? And you can see something here of what we can take from this. The application to us is, is not maybe an obvious one. You know, we can talk about, you know, does the Holy Spirit still speak and so forth. But the application is this. That the Spirit of God leads believers, and he still does. And he does that from point A to point B. But to get to point A to point B, he leads Christians, those whom he loves and those who love him, through places that are painful. Doesn't the psalmist tell us that it's through the valley of the shadow of death the Lord leads us? It's through the valley of the shadow of death. Not around it, not tunnel under it, not in a modern way, take a helicopter over it and just look down below it and see the sight and sight, see that valley. Through the valley of the shadow of death. The prophets describe this where they describe uh, the Israelites being led by God, just like the ancient Israelites being led through the wilderness, to be led through fires and through floods of waters. God leads Christians through suffering. He even brings suffering. He allows suffering, however we describe that into our lives to lead us through it. There's no guarantee, there's no promise in the Bible to believers in the Lord that they are freed, therefore, from sin, uh, 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 the effects of sin, or that they are freed from uh, the trials that come about as sinners or the temptation of the world, that we are freed from things like poverty or pain or disease. There's no promise. The promise is that in all of that stuff, the effects of a sinful world, God is with us. That's the difference. 
That's the difference. I saw somebody, uh, an unbeliever, uh, asked, a, asked a believer recently, um, you know, well, why should I believe in Jesus if, if there is no, uh, if, there, if there's no guarantee of, of, of being freed from trials, temptations, tribulations, sufferings, disease, death? Why should I believe in Jesus? And I thought this believer gave a, just a beautiful answer, uh, which was because it gives us meaning and purpose. When we are facing death, we can face that death knowing that Jesus Christ has already undergone death and conquered it for us. And it's as if he's there with us holding our very hand in death. We're not guaranteed freedom from death. We're guaranteed that he's with us in death. That's the promise to us. That's the good news. And so here's Paul saying, I don't even count my own life as of any value to myself. I wanted to die for Jesus Christ. And so he's led to Jerusalem. He's led even through these prophecies. And even as the church is misunderstanding and misapplying, and maybe we might even say something of a selfishness, that they don't want to see Paul leave. They love him so much. But Paul's being led in all that. And he's led notice two disciples. This is one of the, uh, another beautiful point here, is that in all of these uh, uh, journeys of his and all these uh, legs of his journey. These are various ships where they end up and where they go uh, to Tyre for a seven days, to Ptolemais for a day, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and so forth. But you notice that throughout the leading and throughout the journey of the Holy Spirit, Paul is never an isolated individual. This is one of the things that we've got to learn as well, that the Holy Spirit's leading. We, we think of that as a very individualistic, very personalistic thing. He's leading me. You know, I'm the pawn on the chessboard, and you know, where am I being moved to? But here Paul is being led with a group to other groups. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You cannot be isolated as a, as a Christian from the body of Christ. You cannot go it alone as a Christian. He's being led to disciples, to believers, to congregations, to leadership of those congregations. Just like as you, as you start a fire and you, uh, you, the, the coal's at the bottom and you throw more wood on it and the fire keeps going. And just like if a, if a coal sort of falls at the top of the heap and it makes its way uh, on a beach bonfire all by itself, uh, isolated, that, that piece of coal eventually won't be red hot. It'll just turn black and it'll fizzle out. It'll smoke out. It loses its heat. It loses its purpose. It no longer can be used for the fire. It just is there by itself. In the same way, the Christian cannot be isolated. We cannot think that we can do it alone. Paul the Apostle needed other believers. We confess in the, in the creed that we believe in the communion of the saints. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. Paul the Apostle if he needed other Christians, trust me, you and I do too. And so he was led to other disciples to encourage them uh, and to be encouraged. All along the way, he's been telling them exactly where he's going, going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to me. Don't go, don't go, don't go. I'm going to go. And so they resolve, let the Lord's will be done. He, too, needed that encouragement to continue on despite the fire that was awaiting him, the obstacles that were there. 
And so he's led to Jerusalem finally. He gets there to Jerusalem. The church receives him gladly, we're told in verse 17. He, he meets with James and all the elders. We looked last Sunday at what that, uh, that term presbyter mean, uh, uh, means. And so James is, uh, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he's, the, uh, he's the leader of the presbyters, the elders. Uh, uh, and they, he relates to them, notice, all the things that God had done amongst the Gentiles. And they glorified God. We saw this back in chapter 15. But now he's doing it again. He's done it once before. They glorified God. They wrote that letter to the Gentile churches. Paul went back out on a missionary journey. And now he's there three years later. And now James is saying there are thousands of Jewish believers here in Jerusalem. But they're all very zealous of the laws and customs of the Jewish people. We've already dealt the Gentiles and given them this letter that we agreed to in chapter 15. uh, That Jerusalem council. But we have these four brothers here who have taken a Nazarite vow. That's why they would shave their hair. A Nazarite vow. And uh, would you go with them to the temple, pay their, uh, pay their way to the temple? Would you also join them in shaving your head in a Nazarite vow uh, to show the Jews that you are not contrary to the law? And so Paul does that. That's what he goes on to say later on in his letters to the Corinthians, that to the Jews became a Jew, to the Gentiles became a Gentile. That's why he took, he took Timothy half Jewish, half Gentile, and for the sake of the gospel, to not offend the Jews, what did he do with Timothy? He circumcised him. To the Gentiles, he became a Gentile. To the, to the Jews, he became a Jew. Do you, eat the, the, do you eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols or not? Well, if we ever get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll see. Paul says it depends. The idols don't even exist. It's just food. But if it's going to offend a Jewish person who sees you as eat, watches you eat this food sacrificed to an idol, you're going to offend them, don't eat it. Or if you're there amongst the Gentile even, they think, wow, this person really believes in, the God, in, in our God, Zeus and, and Artemis and so forth, then don't eat it. But if you're around Christians and, and they understand that I, the idols don't even exist, the gods are fake, the food is just food, go ahead and eat it. To one party you become one, to another party you become another for the sake of the gospel. And so he goes and we're told he takes them in, verse, 20, uh, verse 26, the next day, and he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So the Holy Spirit in this chapter is leading the Apostle Paul. He's leading the Apostle Paul. And we, as well as believers, as apostolic Christians, need to follow his lead. And you even see here that the Holy Spirit, that leading the Holy Spirit means to be led to do hard things as Christians. To be led to do hard things as Christians. All for the sake of spreading the gospel. That's why Paul's doing this. It's to bring the gospel. Ultimately, not just to the Jews in Jerusalem, but to bring the gospel to the Romans. And he wanted to get to Spain to bring the gospel to them too. The Holy Spirit leads us in our daily lives. Embrace that. Understand that. Believe that. Trust that. Be sensitive to that. All so that we can share the gospel. Why is it that you, Christian, your friend might say, why would you undergo this? Why would you, why would you suffer like this? Why would you believe in the God that you believe in when... This has just happened to you. 
this medical diagnosis, this financial burden, this family problem, why would you still believe in your God? It's so that you can share the gospel with them. That there is hope and meaning and purpose and divine power in the middle of all those sufferings, trials, tribulations, temptations. Let's believe in the Holy Spirit's leading. Let's ask him to help us to, to, uh, in, the, in, in that leading to spread his word, to share his gospel, to bring hope to those who are wandering aimlessly without meaning, without hope. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we ask now that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to go forth in joy, to be led forth in your peace and power, to be bold witnesses, to be light in the midst of darkness, that there is a God, that he is orchestrating all of human history. There is an end point in which he will send that great judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, may we be willing and able and understanding, Lord, and and, uh, receptive to your leading and guiding so that when the world asks us for the reason, for the hope that lies within us, in the hope of trusting in you and having meaning and purpose, that we would be able and willing and ready to speak very simply of that wonderful truth of your Holy Spirit's leading, to guide us from faith to faith, from one degree of glory to another, until we see you face to face, and until that day when there is no more death or pain or curse, disease, suffering, tribulation, but that day where all things are made new, the day in which you will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. Give us that hope even now in the midst of many tears. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's sing this morning uh, that great Christian hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, 524. Let's stand.